If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Assassinated husbands, murdered sisters and royal upstarts. Queens Brunhild and Fredegund were iron-willed powerhouses behind a bloody and bitter rivalry which racked the Frankish Empire in the late 6th century. In her new book, The Dark Queens, Shelley Puhak delves into the lives of these two Merovingian women, and she spoke to Emily Briffitt about how their stories have been suppressed and overlooked in subsequent centuries. So today we're going to be talking about your new book, The Dark Queens, which details the life of two Merovingian queens, Fredegund and Brynhild. So I wanted to start by asking you, what inspired you to write about them? I actually came across their story completely by accident. So I was researching a completely separate Viking queen, and I came across a mention in a contemporary source that said, if you think the rivalry between, it was between a particular Danish queen and the king of Norway, if you think that is bad, wait until you hear about the rivalry between these two queens. And I started researching and reading up on it, and I was just completely entranced, and I ended up down a research rabbit hole, and the book was born. So for a bit of a contextual question, who were these queens? 
They were two sisters-in-law who ruled towards the end of the 6th century over the Frankish Empire, which encompassed most of Western Europe at the time. And they both came to power after their husbands were assassinated and ruled as regents for a succession of sons and then grandsons. Whereabouts did they fit into the Merovingian dynasty? So it's, uh, the Merovingian dynasty rules from about the beginning of the 6th century well into um, the 7th and 8th. And they're pretty early on. So we're about 60 years in. They married the great grandsons of Clovis, who was considered the founder of the dynasty. What do you think makes them both worth study now? Why do you think they've perhaps been so overlooked beforehand? I think they've been overlooked, or we know they've been overlooked, because their stories were purposely suppressed, both for political and for cultural reasons, by their immediate successors and then by... Um, ensuing dynasties and kings and rulers who didn't want other women to get any funny ideas about seizing power. I think they're very worth studying because, first of all, we have these, we're just lucky enough to have these historical records that kind of bring them to life. And we see them as these fully complex women. They're flawed, they're brilliant, they're iron-willed, and they accomplish quite a lot. And they accomplish so much during one of the darkest periods in human history. So I think it's just completely amazing that they were able to accomplish what they did, given the odds were stacked against them. Throughout your book, there seems to be many strong female characters. So I wanted to ask you, why were there so many female rulers in the sixth century? What created this environment where so many women could be rulers? It's a very big surprise, isn't it? I was just astounded to see that we have women ruling and in so many walks of life, not just politically, but also in terms of like the church and culturally, we end up with a perfect storm with climate change and a pandemic, if that sounds eerily familiar, and that throws the world into chaos. But that chaos also makes people willing to look for new solutions, willing to try, take a chance on a new ruler. And I think that that really creates some unprecedented opportunities for women and for other minorities in this time period that we don't see in other time periods. So you spoke there a little bit about both the pandemic and the climate change. Can you tell us a little bit more about the extent of this and what that actually entails? Absolutely. In fact, prior to both Queen's births, uh, the year 536, a lot of historians, including Michael McCormick at Harvard, have pegged 536 as the worst possible year to be a human, to be alive. Because we have a volcano that erupts in Iceland, we have a two degree Celsius change in temperature worldwide. We have 18 months of darkness. So we essentially have no crops, we have snow falling in summer, and we have just disruption to the entire system everywhere. So we have people writing about this happening in China, we have them writing about it in Europe, we have all of these, all of these records. It's completely devastating. And so that's pretty bad, right? One has to imagine. But as soon as the silt from the volcanoes is cleared from the atmosphere, it looks like it looks like things are making a comeback, temperatures are starting to warm up. Then there's another volcanic eruption in 540 that blots out the sun. And then in 541, we have the bubonic plague that starts making its rounds. So the fact that Brunhild and Fredegan even survived is kind of astounding because we know mortality rates are just huge. We've got famine. We've got sort of large-scale chaos and that we have people 
leaving cities, hiding out in the countryside, ravaging for food. We've got ongoing war. And then we have this bubonic plague with this huge mortality rate. A few years later, we'll have a smallpox epidemic. um, And then there'll be more volcanic eruptions in 547. So it's kind of astounding that humans survived at all. I find it um, in some ways inspiring and that not only do they survive, but when they come back, when harvests return, um, they're more plentiful thanks to some innovations that people keep some continuity with Roman traditions, but they're also willing to branch out. So for those lucky enough to survive, we have this unprecedented era of social mobility. So we have enslaved people who are able to completely change their social status by marrying a noble. Or we have people that are able to move into an abandoned villa and all of a sudden they're, you know, landed gentry, so to speak. People are leaving, people are changing careers, people are remarrying. And so this is just an unprecedented time of social change and of opportunity. So this is really an age that favors the bold. And one can imagine how women who are able to survive these circumstances and come of age as all around them, they see these remarkable changes happening, might start to entertain the delusion that they could one day rule. So I think that's a really interesting bit of context there. But I'd like to return a bit to the story of Fredegund and Brunhild themselves. So what do we actually know of the background of these women? How did they become queens? So Brunhild has what we might consider a more typical path for a queen. She's raised as a Visigoth princess, and the Visigoths ruled what we now know as Spain. And she was the younger daughter of a king who had no sons. And so he raised his eldest daughter, we think, to be his heir. And that was not uncommon in the time period, surprising as that might sound to us. And his youngest daughter knew she would be married off to secure an important alliance. And she was married off to a Frankish king to essentially ensure peace between those two kingdoms. But Fredegund's path to queenship is much different in that we know she was enslaved, most likely as a child. She ends up working in the kitchens of the royal palace. She's promoted by a queen. And then she ends up supplanting that queen, uh, coming to power as maybe a concubine or a mistress for a bit of time, and then eventually being able to marry that king and take her place on the throne as a queen in her own right. So they both come from these completely different backgrounds, which I think makes their story even more exciting. How much do we actually know about their character and motivations in life? That's a difficult question to answer because so much of what we know is filtered through the men in their lives. So we do have contemporary accounts, but the men that are writing about them all have their own acts to grind. So it's important to look at, and what I had to do was look at like multiple accounts and also take into consideration what were the motivations of the person writing each account. So, for example, one of Brunhild's allies, Gregory of Tours, has one of the most extensive contemporary accounts of the time period. But he's very pro-Brunhild and, you know, Fredegund is a witch. She clearly uses magic. She's very, 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 very evil, clearly. And so everything he writes about her, we have to take with a grain of salt. But we also have to look at some of his silences about his own patron, Queen Brunhild, and wonder, hmm, that's odd. Nothing seems to happen there. Or, oh, all of a sudden, we know 
this alliance was negotiated. And, and it's strange that the Queen's just not doing anything right then. So there are times when we also see that Queen Brunhild might have had a hand in a murder or assassination or some other funny business. And he's curiously silent about that. So it was a difficult research process in the sense that you have to sort of dig into all of those and look at multiple accounts and line them up next to each other and look at who had what to gain by saying what. But we do get a sense of who they enraged and what social mores they violated or what rules they might have, unspoken rules they might have broken through those contemporary accounts. In your book, one of the themes that jumps out is the sense of being an outsider, that Fredegund and Brunhild were outsiders and were surrounded by some other people who also felt they were outsiders. Why was this? Could you tell us a little bit more? Absolutely. So Brunhild, even though she comes from what we see as a very privileged background, we have to keep in mind that she's a foreigner. So she's in a land where she doesn't speak, for example, like the colloquial language. She is far away from her father and her mother. And then her father also passes away shortly after she becomes queen. She's not able to rely on his successor in the same way she might have been. And she's lost her sister, who's her only sibling in the world. And there are no family ties necessarily to fall back on. And we also know that the king that she marries, Sigebert, there's no, there are no other royal women at court. So there's no mother-in-law, there are no sisters, there are no aunts. So she's essentially without any familial ties. We know that her husband is often away fighting wars. So she was isolated in the sense of being a foreigner and of just by virtue of being female. And, and we know Fredegund, we don't know of her having any family at all. We don't know if they did survive and she just chose not to speak of them. But it's very unusual for the time period because there were many formerly enslaved people who were able to advance in the society because of the social mobility. But most of them would then reward extended family members with land or some sort of title or position. And she, there's no record of her ever doing so. So one can probably safely assume she was an orphan or she thought of herself as such. So she has no family ties. She likely has some friends or allies among the servants in the palace who help her from time to time. But again, she's seen as more of an upstart in this world. So she has no land. She has no title. She has no family. So both of them, in that sense, were definitely outsiders in this world that placed a premium on having this larger extended family that helped you rise and survive. So without those family ties to support you, I mean, they were essentially adrift. How much agency did these women have over their own lives? A huge amount. It's actually quite astounding. Now, initially, I don't think that's the case. But once they are both ruling as regents, they are essentially designing foreign policy. They are negotiating alliances. And in some cases, they're even securing not just their own sort of financial future, but that of the other women around them. In a particular case, for example, Queen Brunhild negotiates a treaty with another king. And there's a really interesting clause in there where she makes sure that her daughter-in-law, her daughter, other women in her circle that their property can't be taken away, that they can't be forced into marriage. So 
there's quite a lot of agency that they're able to exercise on their own behalf and on the behalf of others that were in their circle. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This is during a time period when there are other people seeking to establish the legitimacy of their reign. And they're saying, oh, but we go all the way back to Fredegon. And so she's become this illustrious forebearer where there are other points in time where they're like, this woman is crazy. Like, we don't want to be associated with her. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. I want to ask you a bit of a broader question, which is, what were the key turning points in their lives? So one of the juiciest stories has to do with how they both come to power. So initially, Brunhild is married off to the third brother. An important thing to know about the Frankish kings is that they split, when someone died, they split the land equally among all of the sons. So rather than the eldest son inheriting everything, any son, illegitimate or legitimate, had a claim to that kingdom. So as you can imagine, things get quite messy. So there are four brothers at the time that are ruling the Frankish kingdom altogether. And Brunhild is married off to the third of those brothers. And so initially she's kind of joining this whole cast of other assorted queens. And then what happens is the youngest brother becomes a little bit jealous, like, ooh, my brother has this, you know, very titled, highborn wife, and was becoming concerned because there was a lot of rumbling in the kingdom that perhaps any children that his brother and his new fancy queen would bear would be the real heirs, that maybe they would somehow be have more of a claim to the entire kingdom. So he decides that he also wants a nice highborn wife. And he negotiates the hand of Brunhild's sister. So this oldest sister had been set aside to be the heir of the Visigoth kingdom because, again, her father has no sons. And the only way that they could pull off this negotiation was Chilperic, 
the king had to offer a third of his kingdom in exchange. The land that he was offering directly adjoined the Visigoth kingdom. So it was an offer the king couldn't turn down. And if things didn't work out with his new wife, she would be entitled to take all of that land, a third of the kingdom, and bring it back to Visigoth, Spain. So it was a very uh, generous offer. So for a while, certain that the Visigoth king probably couldn't believe his good fortune because he's married off both of his daughters. He has essentially nothing to worry about from his eastern borders. And he's looking at the potential that he will enlarge his kingdom significantly. Well, Fredegund had been set aside. She had been Chilperic's mistress, possibly concubine. And one of the conditions of this new marriage was that Chilperic had to send away all other women. He could have no mistresses. He could have no concubines. He had to be Galswintha, that's Brynhild's sisters, like devoted Christian husband. And he swore a public oath in order to do so. But somehow Fredegon worms her way back into the palace. And soon there are, there are fights between Galswintha and Chilperic. And eventually it's coming to blows. And there seems to have been a plot for Galswintha to threaten to leave. And when she left her husband, she was going to take a third of his kingdom with her. So as you can imagine, this is, this is a huge crisis for the kingdom. So Chilperic's solution to the problem of how could he manage to have Fredegund on the one hand, but also keep that third of his kingdom and not have his wife take it back with her was to have her murdered. So we end up with a situation where Gauswintha is found dead, strangled in her bed one morning. And three days later, King Chilperic has married Fredegund. As you can imagine, there might have been some animosity now between Brunhild and her new sister-in-law, who might have had a hand in murdering her sister. It's very convoluted, almost like a soap opera. But that's how these two end up on the royal stage. And then shortly thereafter, Fredegund will have a hand in the assassination of Brunhild's husband. And then many years later, Brunhild will most likely though it hasn't been proven, have a hand in assassinating Fredegund's husband. Both women end up ruling as regents in their own right. So it's a very splashy, dramatic beginning to both of their reigns. It's very much the soap opera, isn't it? Slightly excessive, perhaps. Alongside this idea of key points in their life, how similar or perhaps dissimilar were their lives? Their lives are extraordinarily similar because they face a lot of the same challenges. They face the open misogyny of their courts. They face a struggle to produce a male heir so that they can ensure their positions. Um, they face a lot of resistance from the church, or a lot of the same resistance from the church. But we also see that they ha each have different talents, or I might say a different skill set that they bring to the table, whereas Brunhild definitely renowned for her diplomacy. She was great at forging alliances and building relationships with other women that were very valuable to her in terms of heading off assassination plots, for example, but also forging relationships with the church. She has this great friendship with the Pope we know as Gregory the Great, for example, and that leads to the bringing Christianity to Britain at the time period, even though her role by Bede was essentially kind of erased or overlooked. But at the time, the Pope said that she was the most instrumental person in the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons at the time period. 
So she's great at making friends with influential people. Today, we might think of her with, you know, having this huge contact list. But so she has this great talent for bringing people together. Whereas Fredegund has a real knack for military strategy. And she's renowned as a military leader. She comes up with some incredible battle strategies. And we know that she borrows some things from Roman commanders. And she also might pioneer some things that are borrowed later on by other kings and commanders, and even a battle strategy that shows up in Shakespeare's Macbeth. So they definitely rely on a different, each have different talents that they're able to use. But I always think of Brunhild more as the diplomat, and Fredegan is more of the military mastermind. So are there any particular examples where their talents most come to the forefront? In Fredegan's case, she is great at using an army to best advantage, particularly when she's outnumbered. And we see her do this twice. In both times, it's kind of astounding how she manages to pull off a victory. But she is, in both instances, surrounded by a much larger force and manages through kind of trickery, choosing the battlefield ahead of time to use what small forces she has to her best advantage. And so in one instance, she famously uses like a walking forest, right, to disguise her troops and they march at night, which is not a common tactic. And they're able to surround and slaughter the opposing army while they are sleeping. And another time she picks this ridge. And what's so fascinating about this ridge that she chooses is it's a limestone ridge that runs between the valleys of two rivers. And it ends up being the site later on of battles, um, a vantage point that Napoleon uses and the Prussians use. And there's three World War I battles that are fought. But one of the first instances like we know of is Fred again sees the strategic importance of this ridge. And below it are all these like little limestone caves. So she's able to position spies that are able to report back on the movements of this much larger army. And just by the way she positions her army, she's able to ensure their success. But I think it's really important to mention that this is the Franks are a warrior culture. So to have a woman marching with them and then like leading them is really extraordinary. For the time period, there would often be, you know, perhaps queens behind the lines, maybe marching with the king if they were being moved from one position to another or during retreat. But this was not common. So the fact that not only is she able to enact these strategies, but she's able to secure the loyalty of these battle-hardened men who are essentially misogynist at their core tells you something about what a force of nature she must have been, like what a commanding presence and personality she must have had. And there are a lot of apocryphal um, legends that survive that have her leading you know, an army with a baby either strapped to her chest or in the saddle in front of her, but they just give this sense of this like completely fearless queen who... People are terrified when, you know, they know that she's on the march. What about Brunhild? What about her talents? Could you tell us a bit more about them and maybe how we see them come to life? Absolutely. So Brunhild's talent for diplomacy, we see this in all sorts of ways in terms of domestic treaties, where she's able to negotiate with one of the last surviving Frankish kings to name her son as his heir and symbolically adopt him. But we also see her able to negotiate all sorts of treaties with foreign powers. And that includes working with her mother in Visigoth, Spain, 
for potential alliance. Unfortunately, it falls apart, but they were certainly ambitious in looking at a way to potentially unite the two kingdoms. We see her working with the Byzantines. We see her working with the Lombards in Italy. So she is negotiating with every foreign ruler at this time period in the known world, at least to her. And she's doing so quite successfully. And what's really fascinating is that she's named in treaties as a party to a treaty, like with a lot of other men, and then we'll see Queen Brunhild. So she's not doing this behind the scenes. She's doing this in her own right. And we also see her serving as a judge in the first recorded instance in Western history. So she is a sitting judge and Fredegon then will do so as well. And we don't have any records of women doing so before. It's possible they did, but we don't have any written evidence that they did so. But we do know that Brunhild serves as the royal judge and cases are brought before her and she's the one making the decisions, which is pretty incredible. You've spoken a little bit throughout about them being almost erased by the Carolingian dynasty and by subsequent rulers. Can you tell us more about how they've been erased? So right after both Fredegon and Brunhild's death, surprisingly, the person who first takes action against them is Fredegon's son. And so he erases the memory of his own mother and of his aunt by literally just taking them out of historical records. So he creates a gap. It's as if they never existed, as if they never issued any tolls or taxes. So he takes them out of the official record. And we might have a clue as to why he does so, because we see that he was criticized for paying too much attention to the Council of Women. This seems to have been sort of a pointed reminder to him by other nobles that they had supported his bid for power in exchange for a promise that women would not be ruling and that they were concerned that maybe his, you know, his mother still exerted some influence on him even from beyond the grave and potentially his own wife. And so he was very careful to do their bidding and to erase both women from the record. And then we see later on, there are a lot of Carolingian women who try to seize power and try to rule as regents. And they're clearly following in Brunhild and Fredegon's footsteps We even note that the famous Charles Martel is held off by a woman, right, who's, you know, could have gone either way, who was a serious contender at that time. And so the Carolingians, we see them also going in, and it's amazing to see these chronicles when we have multiple versions of them, and you can see how things are rewritten, things are taken out, and things are erased. And depending on who's writing about what account, All of a sudden, we have these prophecies inserted that say that, you know, Brunhild is doomed from the beginning or that God doesn't want, you know, women ruling. And we we see these little, like, insertions. And that was a fascinating for me to see the process of their erasure, to see how deliberate it was and to see how longstanding it was and to literally be able to see it happen right before your eyes as you're flipping through these, these different chronicles. It's really fascinating. How have Fredegund and Brunhild been perceived throughout history? Has this been a shifting interpretation? Absolutely. In fact, I think of them almost as screens onto which others have projected either their desires or their ambitions for their own dynasty or their own political aims. So we can see radically differing interpretations of them and how they are portrayed in like illuminated manuscripts or even in some of the um, art of the 18th and 19th centuries. So we have everything from them being 
sort of denigrated as these horrible Jezebels to, for example, like in the 14th century where Fredegond is really praised as being this warrior and she's presented as a king would be. We see her torturing um, some of her subjects and burning witches and going off into war, which is kind of amazing. But then we also think, oh, this is during a time period when there are other people seeking to establish the legitimacy of their reign. And they're saying, oh, but we go all the way back to Fredegon. And so she's become this illustrious forebearer where there are other points in time where they're like, this woman is crazy. Like, we don't want to be associated with her. And likewise with Brunhild, she meets a very horrific end at the hands of Fredegon's son, so her nephew. And there are times when we see chroniclers absolutely just reveling in her gory end. And it's kind of a cautionary tale for other women who might aspire to power, like, look what happens. But then there are other times um, where she's seen as kind of, again, like more of an illustrious sort of windblown romantic character. Uh, One of my favorite images that's in the book are these... um, playing cards, these French playing cards um, that Louis XIV would have had. And they present various queens. And Brunhild is presented as the cruel and Fredegon is the shameless. And these are the sort of women that he should not be looking for, for a wife. So (laughs) I do think it's really fascinating looking at how the portrayals of them in sort of popular media and in chronicles have differed so wildly depending upon shifting views of women and power and what dynasty needed to claim legitimacy at any certain period of time. And I do think now there's been a renewed interest in them. Even as I was writing this book, unrelated to this, I was seeing more and more popping up sort of references to them where other people have become entranced by their story. And I think it's because we still lack like a prolonged period of female leadership and of having more than one female ruler. So there's always been women leaders, but they're always either cast as being not like other women. So, you know, Elizabeth I, she's not like other women, and that's what makes her able to rule. Um, Or there there are essentially exceptions to the rule. And I think here's a case where we have these like complicated women. They're very different from one another. And they're ruling for such an extended period of time. And they're not defined by a man's romantic interest in them. So they're ruling not because they've caught, I mean, initially they obviously catch someone's someone's eye or someone's fancy, but they're ruling well after that and into, you know, well past menopause. Maybe we have such an appetite for their story because we don't see many similar ones. How far do you think interpretations throughout history have affected our perceptions of these women? hugely because oftentimes it's cast as a catfight between two conniving women. And you'll often hear this interpretation that all we get from Brunhild and Fredegund is a 40-year civil war. And while technically that's true, we also have to keep in mind that the civil war preceded their reigns and it was started not because of anything the two of them did, but just by the habit of dividing a kingdom among so many sons, right? So there is not just one clear-cut heir, and there's always is a mad scramble. But oftentimes we forget that the men who preceded them were killing their nephews and killing their brothers and slaughtering women and doing all sorts of horrific things. And so what Brunhild and Fredegon 
were doing was what was considered acceptable for Merovingian royals of the time period. And it only is salacious because women are doing it. So they're essentially participating in violence that is entirely customary. And it's cast as a catfight because I think it's easier to laugh at it in some ways and to say, oh, if we you know, kind of fear the power of women, look what happens when you put two women in charge. It's just chaos ensues as opposed to looking at the larger picture. And essentially, oftentimes it's, we had Brunhild and Fredegon, there was civil war. And then after these women, oh, look, we end up with a period of peace and prosperity. And the peace and prosperity is the result of these two women being cast aside, as opposed to this period of peace and prosperity comes about because of the centralizing that these two women did during their own reign. And Fredegon's son will essentially end up uniting all of the Frankish empire, but he's only able to do so because Brunhild, his aunt, has done much of the work for him. So he's able to kind of move into a ready-made empire. Um, And then the dynasties that will rule after them, the Carolingians, have a vested interest in essentially casting the Merovingians as these violent barbarians. And so they obviously perpetrate the myth that, oh, there's these very violent women fighting against one another and look how horrific it is and look at what it leads to. But essentially a lot of what Brunhild and Fredegon did during their reigns is able to set the stage for Charlemagne's empire. And I don't think we have one without the other. How do you think we should now view Fredegund and Brunhild? I think we should view them as really laying the foundation for the Carolingians and Charlemagne and his empire, and thus for a lot of Western civilization, because without these foremothers, we don't end up with that sort of unified Western Europe or the Holy Roman Empire. I think the reigns of both queens have been so consistently dismissed and minimized, And it's really proving to be fertile ground for further study because we learn so much about not just the Merovingian period and not just about how they lay the groundwork for what follows, but about how lasting views about women in power were formed. But we also can look to them to see a lot of our reactions, even today, to female rulers and things that are going to happen to Empress Irene, for example, or a lot of the reactions that we will see to female rulers in the future and throughout time have their roots in how these two queens were treated and the reception they get from the historical chroniclers. So I think it's also really instructive. And that piece has been missing from a lot of the discussion, scholarly and popular, about how do we see women in power? And we go, well, here's, here's, a, here's a prototype of how women in power can be minimized. And the playbook is still being used today. So I think it's really instructive. That was Shelley Puhak. And her book, The Dark Queens, is out now, published by Apollo. And if you want to know more about the Franks, make sure to check out this week's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, where Dr. Christian Coymans tells you everything you need to know about the Frankish world. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.